0: (laughs) Right, not my best reading ever. That
1: one. Had more endings in Lord of the
0: Rings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> giant robots smashing into other giant robots.
0: Hello, everybody. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, September twenty-first. I am Ben Orenstein and I'm here with two lovely guests. This time we have Joe Ferris and Joshua Clayton. How's it going, guys? Good. Great. How are you? I'm awesome. And can I just say that your elocution is excellent? I. That's great to hear. I appreciate that. Uh, this is uh, we're on podcast number like. 14 or 15 now so i've had a lot of practice with that intro i'm feeling feeling pretty good about it nice yeah so we're here today to argue about code and code related products hopefully yeah so our first topic is uh, active record callbacks comma observers comma etc so one of the things i'll get this started so i think you and i were talking about this yesterday joe or a couple of days ago um i find myself frequently regretting using active record callbacks. I find that I after like a callback like an after save or two, things start to get hairy and I find myself with a lot of decisions I regret later on. Is that an experience that you have shared? Yes, definitely.
1: I think the uh the trouble with active record callbacks is that they're so tempting. You frequently do something at the same time that you happen to save a record, and so it's tempting to put that into an after save. Callback, but it's not really a persistence concern. Those callbacks are best used for things that actually have to do with persisting the record that you're saving.
0: Oh, interesting. So um, that's where you draw the line, then. So you think after save stuff is great if it's persistence related,
1: right? So for example, sometimes you might need to update a cache, or maybe you create a dependent record every time you create a parent record. Mm-hmm. I think those situations are, you know, great examples for where you use a callback. But a, a common example that's actually I think displayed as a best practice is sending email. Right. A lot of people send their emails and after save callbacks or in a observer. Um, And I, I also frequently end up regretting those decisions.
0: Yeah. So if it's persistence related, it makes sense because that class still basically has one responsibility, which is persisting this data and the accompanying tasks with it. Like yeah you're less likely to mingle concerns
1: right so i think from a single responsibility principle like a class level glance it makes perfect sense but also i think you know like after a save as a callback is attaching something to the save method the save method is for saving yeah. it's persistence so it's not like you know deliver this user's email or whatever like you're saying save and then you look in the log and it's like oh look at that look
0: at all that stuff it did yeah how about you josh I, yeah, I basically
2: agree with, uh, with everything that, that Joe said, um, you know, the experiences that that I have had over the years that I've been using rails has been, if it's doing anything other than pers- persistence related stuff, you know, a lot of times that it, it definitely belongs somewhere else and the mm-hmm. same with observers. And one thing that, that I wanted to bring up was, uh, testing observers. I feel that's it's, it's insanely difficult to do because it's so coupled to the model and it's just hard to or to to, uh, you know, dive down into the unit level aspect at that point because everything is so t- tightly coupled with active record and mm-hmm. and the observers.
1: Yeah, I think that so, you know, if you do have something persistence related, like especially if it's going to be shared between several models, pulling that into an observer makes sense—an active record observer, not just the observer pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that they're insanely difficult to test. I think that it doesn't get any easier to test by pulling it out. You can turn them off. So if you want, you can write unit tests for a model, turn them off, and then turn them back on again. It is difficult to test the observer without you know the model you're testing. But you actually can, right? Um you can there's a there's a singleton for each active record observer, and you can call methods on it directly. Those callback methods, you can just stub out an object, call those methods with that object. So you know, there there are ways
0: to test it. Right. Is there an advantage to using the active record observer stuff over rolling your own other than sort of convenience?
1: Yeah, I'd say um, convenience is one way to put it, but I don't think that can be overrated. Like, I think one of the great things about a framework is that it removes boilerplate, which, you know, first of all, that cuts out the time it takes you to get to whatever you're actually doing. And second by, you know, like, for example, active record itself as a framework, you kind of class. It's a very high-level concept. So, like an Active Record class means something very special. So, as a Rails developer, as somebody who's familiar with the Active Record library, you immediately know a lot of things about a class by seeing that. On the other hand, frameworks are bad at making small, easy to understand objects, like objects that make sense in isolation, that are easy to test in isolation, because you know it, a lot of baggage comes with it. Right? Like Active Record objects automatically do a lot. So, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. But I think in terms of an active record observer, if you have an active record class, the amount of boilerplate and the number of decisions um, that you have to make before you get to the point that you actually have an observer is obnoxious. Like, which of the many observer implementations in Ruby will I use? Or will I roll my own? Where do I set up the observers? Will I do it globally at startup? Will I do it in the controller? Mm -hmm. Those decisions all are meaningless. But, you know, like, making decisions is tiring. So. Right, hmm.
0: So is is that, our observers sort of the standard answer to you want to do stuff that happens at some point in the life cycle of an object and you don't want to do it in a callback? Is that like the, the go-to thing you guys reach for? If it's related to persistence. Uh, what if it's not? I mean, cause, cause can you have, the, will the active record observers let you fire arbitrary events or is it tied purely to the active record like life cycle? You, you
2: can fire any events that you want. Basically, it's a trigger and then you can pass in an object and bind to that event and it'll go through and you know, you'll have access to it from the observers okay
0: so you can do non-persistence related type things with the actor observers yes if you like right right okay but those
1: are all like state workflow
0: type things i think there are situations
1: where uh you know there's this complicated stuff going on like payment processing is a, a, pro, a common example or like in a ticket tracker you know there are many different states that a ticket can be in and so it's useful to fire different things that you know, transitions from one state to another. Mm. But I think most simple things, like the common case of you're creating a user, you want to send them an email welcoming them, there's no real state transition going on. There's one thing that happens. And so going to the trouble of having a callback or even, you know, making your own custom observer state name is is serious overkill for that. Mm. It has a lot of complexity and, you know, a few different levels of indirection for not much gain.
0: Mm. So then do you reach for, like, something that composes that? So it's something that knows how to put a user through its paces when they change state? Uh, Well, I
1: mean, there isn't really a... I I don't think... I think of it as a state change. I think of it as an action, right? Like, you're adding a user to the system. Okay. And so I guess the question is, like, if I don't want to do it in a callback or an observer, where do I send that email? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the simple example would be to to do it from the controller, right? So you have a create action that saves a user and then an email needs to be sent, right? You can put it right there, you can move it into a private method uh, that gives it a nice name like save user and deliver invitation. Mm -hmm. Um, Controllers are like a little bit harder to test than other classes in general, I find, just because you need so much stuff to get at their actions, Uh, so there's that one downside. But it's like, it's very quick, it's very simple, it's easy to understand. There's not much indirection that you introduce there. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so a controller isn't a bad place for that sort of thing to live?
1: No, I don't think so. I think there's a, a point at which it becomes messy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have to do a lot of things, like I said, it's harder to test those things. Or if you have a lot of conditions or other actors involved, it can be annoying to test it there.
0: Mm. Um, somewhat related, because we're talking about state changes, um, I feel like, Josh, I've heard you say recently that you're... Um, You think people sort of over-prescribe state machines a bit? Definitely. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I wrote a blog post on it a couple... I guess it was over a month ago now.
0: Okay, what was the gist of that?
2: Basically that you can usually accomplish exactly what you need to do without introducing a state machine. Hmm. Um, Obviously, there are certain cases where state machines are useful, and I'm not saying never use a state machine. I'm just saying a lot of the time you really don't need that much weight.
0: So what? So like, what is the line for you? Like, why? Why would I suddenly be like, okay, this does need to be a state machine now versus not?
2: A lot of times, people will start using state machines where it's uh, when it's like a boolean. You could um, express that information in a boolean, like if it's published or not. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get a state for unpublished and a state for published. But you could also just store it in you know either a boolean or a published at. Mm-hmm. Timestamp and it. If it's nil, it's not published. If there's a value set, it's published.
0: Okay. So if I'm working with something that has like five different states, yeah, state machine now or still just like a state column, or
2: I think at that point, if you are introducing events or things that need to happen when you transition between states, that's where you know you start to see a real benefit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. I think what's useful about a state machine library is that it makes it easy to introduce rules about state. So you can say what states are allowed to transition to what states. You can give names to those transitions and things like that. Even if you have five states, but it's just like pick a state, and then based on your state you'll do something.
0: That What do you get
1: from a state machine there?
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it's, it's, if your transitions are sort of complicated or there are rules about them, then it becomes more worth
1: it. Right. But I think the other thing is that frequently people jump to the idea of state before they really need state. Um, so for example, you could represent, um, if you have a a wizard, right, where you sign up for an account in four steps, Mm -hmm. you could represent that in state, right? You could have five states, the, like the newest state, one for each step and then one for finished. Mm -hmm. But there are other ways you can represent that without involving a state or a state machine. Okay. And so for example, in that specific case, it's not really useful to have states so much as they're just like steps, right? Like the names aren't important. And so you could just give it a number and increment it. And then you don't need to have rules about, like, you go from new user to user with name. Then you go from user with name to user with address or anything like that. You can just do steps. And then the rules are sort of inherent in the fact that you're doing arithmetic.
0: Right. Interesting. Um, So looping back just for a second to where we're talking about callbacks and things like that. So... Joe, you were saying that you think it's a decent place for the controller to have, if you have you know, simple things like sending an email after you create a user, for example. Um, when that gets more complicated, as it tends to do, like you want to send an email and do something on a remote service and invalidate some caches and things like that. Like, What what are your options at that point so your controller doesn't get full of sort of callback soup or responsibility soup? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, at that point, I would extract a method object. And so, a class whose only responsibility is to perform one action.
0: Mm. And that's like the action that happens after a user, whatever.
1: Right. So, you can make like a user a saver or like a sign up class, for example. Mm. Gotcha.
0: Josh and I went, uh, we're using a lot of these, I think, on level up. We sort of found a number of processes that, like, were, for instance, were just sort of bundled into uh, like one of their the objects that are sort of godlike, which was order. Mm-hmm. And there were things like, oh, when an order completes, A bunch of stuff happens and this was all just methods on order that called each other and we pulled that out into like an order completer and a claim redeemer and things like this. all these sort of method object things that just have like one go methods like okay here's the order do a bunch of stuff to it but you know all the things that are the steps of order completion
1: exactly Mm -hmm. the other thing you can do short of doing a, a method object if it's not actually that complicated but you know like let's say for example that um this email you're sending or whatever else you're doing requires a lot of state from the user. So that means that if you do it in the controller, you're going to keep doing user.name, user.email, user. you know, invitee or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you have some feature envy going on there. The simplest thing to do would be just move a method there, right? So you make a new uh, method on user that's like deliver welcome. And that just moves it in there. So instead of doing user.it's just name, email, invitee. Gotcha. And so you get rid of the feature envy, but you don't have to start like adding new classes, adding other levels of indirection.
0: Can you just clarify what feature envy is, real quick?
1: Sure. So feature envy is in, is when one class um, is referring frequently to the state of another class. So in that example, um, you know the controller is trying to get a bunch of stuff from user only so that it can give it to this email, right? Like name, email, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It would be better to have that method on user where the state is part of the the object you're talking about.
0: Hmm. So it seems like uh, method objects are almost at odds or would tend to show feature envy, right? Because like, so like, I'm writing an order completer, which takes an order and does a bunch of stuff to that order. Is that still feature envy? Because it's, it's, it's concerned with the state of that outside object.
1: It doesn't have to be. So like feature envy is um, usually called out when it's using the same object a lot. So, for example, if you have during an order completion process like four collaborators or four steps involved, it can be useful to pull that onto a method object that just does one thing with each of the collaborators. Um, And then if you have more than one step on any one collaborator, you can move a method there to get rid of the feature envy. Mm. I think there are situations where... um, So, feature envy is a smell, right? Which means there could be a problem. It doesn't mean you should always fix it.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: So, for example, in, you know completing an order it may be that there are a number of steps in the same object and you could move them onto that object but having them all on the same class outside of the user may increase clarity enough that it's worth having the feature envy right
0: yeah I think that's actually where that class is right now because it is poking and prodding order exclusively but the process is is sort of involved and so and it actually does have a collaborator too so I, it, it feels worth it being in its own class even if it is at that, the cost of that smell. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we wanted to talk about was uh, before filters versus middleware. That's kind of a big topic. Uh, thoughts about that?
2: I'm for it to a degree. I think that Rack is is really powerful, mm-hmm. and you know it should be used for for what it's good for. If you're injecting things or um, or mutating the response. And you can do that before it hits a controller. That's great. But a lot of times, there's it's another level of indirection. Mm-hmm. You're introducing this new directory that that you know your teammates are going to need to look into to figure out, oh well, what's going to happen to this response and where is it getting picked up? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are, there are pros and cons to moving stuff into middleware. But if it's a lot of times, middleware is great for abstract concepts. For example, if you introduce. JSON P, there's a rack middleware for JSON P. Obviously you wouldn't want to, to introduce that into all your controllers that support that. And at the same time, it's not so tightly coupled to your system mm. and the rest of your application that you you know it makes sense to move it out to a rack
0: middleware. Mm. Whereas putting it in a before filter for a lot of controllers is sort mm. of like adding another responsibility to those controllers, and if you really need it everywhere, why why is it being duplicated all the
2: Exactly. Place? Yep.
0: Agree? Disagree, Joe? Yeah.
1: Yeah, actually, I think I mostly agree, even though I know that's boring. But I'll, I'll disagree in just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so I think that... Um, I think it's not so much the complexity of what you're doing that makes it useful to extract. I think it's, um, it depends on whether or not it crosses the layers, whether or not you want to have it in middleware or as a before filter. So as an example, um, you know, we have a library clearance where we do authentication. Having before filters and controller methods there is necessary because the controller needs to know about the current user Mm -hmm. and you know some of that can be handled in middleware and some of it is but knowing who the current user is there needs to be a method on the controller because otherwise you have to constantly dig into the rack request everywhere where you care about the current Mm -hmm. user whereas things like um, for example rack cache doesn't cross the layers at all right a request goes into rack cache and then it either goes straight out to the application or rack cache deals with it there's no uh, back and forth communication between the controllers and rack cache Mm -hmm. and so that's an excellent candidate for middleware Mm -hmm. i I do think that when possible it's best to to limit that communication between the layers like if you can make something its own isolated layer that's just easier to deal with and understand and i think that when something can be metalware and it doesn't need to communicate it's also much easier to to test and compose so like one of the things that i've always hated about before filters is that they're so hard to test if you try and add a before filter that's like um One thing I had to deal with recently was I needed to create an analytics identity that was unique for every guest or use the one from the current user. And that's kind of an obnoxious thing to build, right? Uh, And I wanted to do it in middleware, so it'd be much easier to test. If I tested it in the application, I had to either pick a real endpoint that could use this thing and then do a lot of weird mocking or like black box testing, or I could try and make a fake controller that descended from application controller and test it through that. And, I mean, I've tried both of those things, and they're both extremely unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have middleware, you can just, you know, build a stub or a lambda for the actual endpoint application because the Rack API is so simple. And then the middleware can handle all the annoying bits of, like, figuring out the identity. In this specific example, I, I wasn't able to do this because there needed to be communication between layers. It needed to generate a unique identity based on cookies and things like that. But if there was a signed-in user, it needed to reuse the identity from that user. Mm. And as things were written at the time, there was no way from the rack level to figure out who the current user was without duplicating all of the existing authentication
0: logic. Mm. So you mentioned rack cache. Is that something that Rails adds into the middleware stack automatically?
1: Um, I think it's a separate library, actually. Okay. Because
0: I'm just looking at it right now. It says it's a drop-in component to enable HTTP caching for rack-based applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, Does Rails have that on automatically or by default?
1: No. So Rails um, makes it easy to set headers that can be used for the caching layer. Mm. So Rails has a bunch of helpers and controllers like stale and eTag and I forget what else. But it lets you set things like when does this expire? How long should you keep it? When was it modified? What is the unique eTag for this request? Mm. And then any caching layer can use those headers and the request from the browser to figure out whether or not the resource is... Up to date, or you need to fetch it again. Gotcha. And Rack Cache is a really lightweight in process in memory caching layer that works with those headers. Hmm. Interesting.
0: So, what's new in Factory Girl these days, Josh? It's kind of hit a stable point, right? Yeah,
2: we released uh, 4.0 during Cape Code. Uh, I just got 4.1 this past week because I was running into issues where I wanted to assign a single block to multiple callbacks. For example, if I have uh, after create and an after stub callback and I wanted to reuse that same block I would be able to because right now between all of the strategies to build strategies build create build stubbed, and attributes for there's no shared callbacks so I wanted to make sure that I could use build stubbed, which I absolutely love and make sure that it still worked with build and create.
0: For people that don't know what does build stub do?
2: So what build stub does is it will go through it'll instantiate your active record object It'll assign all the attributes it will mix in a module that stubs out id persisted and all the database interactions so update column update attributes uh, save so on and so forth and raise exceptions when those are called so any database that interaction will raise but it'll look like a persisted object so what this does is it will go through and do the same thing for all the associations Mm. So, it doesn't touch the database at all, which makes it insanely fast. A lot of the people gripe about Factory Girl being slow, but Factory Girl is not slow. Saving to the database is. Mm. So, with build stubbed, you you don't touch the database, but you get a real active record instance.
0: Interesting. So, if you're doing, I mean, ideally, you're doing unit testing that doesn't care if you're persisted, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah, basically, the only time I care about persistence uh, in tests is when I'm testing scopes. Or if I'm testing, you know, callbacks, associations, if I test associations, which I usually don't. Hmm. So that's that sort of thing.
0: So that's a nice little choice to sort of shave a little time off your, your it's, test suite. It, it
2: shaves a lot of time off, actually. It's, it's about 10 times faster hmm. than actually persisting. And obviously it depends on how many uh, associations are set up in the factory and so on. So if you have a single... Uh, object and it's going to save five different associated records. It's going to be a lot slower than one that doesn't doesn't have any any associated records. But even still, time will be saved if you don't write to the database.
0: Cool. So that's the good thing to be aware of. just take a look if you're if you're doing factory girl create everywhere. See if you really need to be doing that. If you really need an actual persistent record, or if you can get away with build stubbed mm-hmm. and save yourself some time. Do you have any uh, features on the on the horizon? Anything that you want to be working on? Is, is the repo at like zero issues right now?
2: The I'm pretty sure it's a zero-issue, zero pull requests. Right. I've been uh, keeping it down over the course of the past year, but pretty heavily over the course of the past six months or so. I've been pretty uh, actively attacking that stuff and making sure, making sure that we get the features in that we need to get in. We fix the bugs that you know are out there, which at this point we don't really know of any bugs. I'm sure there are, so if you find one, let me know.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so, Joe, you were one of the original creators of Factory Girl, and then Josh is maintaining it now. Do you feel like you're sort of watching your child being raised by another person right now? (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, I guess in a way. It was a little hard to let go of, but um, you know there were a lot of other things that I became involved with, and as time went on I feel like I was not really giving it the attention it needed. And then we have a pretty, I don't know, collaborative culture here, so a lot of people work on different open source projects and Josh had been doing a lot of good work on Factory Girl. So... And there was no real decision that was made. Um, just over time, he started doing more stuff and our conversations slowly shifted from you know him asking me what he should do to him just kind of like you know doing whatever he wanted to, becoming the maintainer, and then one day we switched the order of the name so that he was the primary maintainer. And it wasn't because we had decided he would be, it was because we realized he had been for some time. Totally. Makes sense. So I think it was a pretty healthy and... Uh, just overall good transition.
0: Yeah, that seems like the best the best way to go about it. Like there wasn't like a long dead period where it was like, well, we really ought to find a maintainer for this because we're not doing anything with it.
1: Yeah, I mean there was a decent period where I wasn't doing anything with it and Josh had not really okay. picked up on it yet, so there was kind of a lull. Mm-hmm. But there was never any point where it was like, oh man, who wants to take this over? Please, Josh, do it. It was just you know, Josh started. Fixing some things that bugged him and over time he got more involved just from getting in the code base and dealing with the other stuff that now bugged him that it wouldn't have bugged him before. Right. <laughs> then totally. he became the maintainer.
0: That's kinda of one of the nice things about our investment time, is like there's a lot of flexibility there. It's like if you're into Factory Girl, then just start working on it and there you go. And it turns out yep. you ended up as as the man. Yep. You still enjoying working on it? Still fascinating? I am. It's it's
2: weird though. The past basically month and a half I really haven't had any time to work on it because you know, it's a summer, so there's vacation, Labor Day, and and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some stuff on the horizon, nothing set in stone yet. And once we do come up with some ideas, you know, we'll go we'll go forward and implement those features. But for the time we've we've just paused, and I think that's totally healthy and natural. You yeah. know, we're not going to add features just to add features. We're not going to refactor just to refactor because at that point it's you know I think it'd just be a waste of time. We're yeah. going to let. You know us and our experiences with the gem, and other people and their experiences with the gem help drive, you know, the next set of features. But if there's no bugs and everything's to be, everything seems to be working well, we're gonna, we're gonna let it sit and let the let the issues come to us.
0: Makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I think in the past, uh, maybe six months to a year, we've added a lot of features that we haven't really gotten to use that much yet. You know, we created them because of some problem, but we didn't refactor all the existing applications because it would have meant, you know, basically rewriting the tests to use these new features. I think one of the coolest things that, um, that has come out in factory Girl in the last year is that it's really easy to use now with non active record objects. So you can test pretty much any class, uh, no matter what the API is, you know, by default, it works with the active record interface, which is, you know, you instantiate it with no arguments, you assign all the attributes one by one and then call save but you can completely override that behavior now and you know after making it so you could override the behavior we made it slowly easier to override pieces of it and to you know do, do those kind of things so i think it's at a point now where it would be useful for testing open source libraries for testing the plain old ruby objects and rails applications and so i'm excited to start
0: doing that yeah have we seen anybody doing that other than that blog post you wrote about urls um, in the wild,
2: I haven't seen anybody else in a while do it. I, you know, I'm a huge proponent of using Factory Factorio for things that aren't active record related. Yeah. Just because it is so flexible, and you can do basically whatever you want. You could use Factory Factorio to build, you know, basically stubs using Open Struct. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the sky's the limit at this point. You can do really whatever you want. It's just a matter of what is useful. That's also understandable by other developers that are working on a project, and what is you know, not completely insane to do, Mm. you know, obviously if there's a much easier way to go about doing something, you're going to do that than introduce factory girl just for the heck of it. So
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. So you you gave a talk uh, a month or two ago about the metaprogramming inside the factory girl internals. Yes. So would you say this is a good um, gem for people to look at if they're curious about learning those techniques?
2: Yeah, I think so. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Basically in my talk, I had focused on three different uh, components of it. Um, define method is a big one, anonymous classes is, is another, and then instance eval and instance exec. And I dug into those three different pieces. Uh, Factory Girl uses all three pretty heavily. Um, and you know we started using it basically out of necess- necessity. There was no easier way, at least in my opinion, there wasn't really an easier way to go about doing some of the stuff that we wanted to do. For example, Factory Girl... Uh, the factories and their parent-child relationships. You know, a lot of time, for a long time, we were struggling with figuring out how to resolve these attributes and we decided on, I decided on using um, Ruby's inheritance to solve that. Mm. You know, I ended up working out really well, but that involved anonymous classes and being able to use those anonymous classes and having each inherit from the other so the attributes basically cascaded. Cool. Which seems you know like a branded simple idea and concept but it was a lot harder to implement
0: yeah and it feels like you're sort of like slowly building ruby up through a gem in a sense yeah yeah like Mm re-implemented class making
2: yes and inheritance and all that stuff so that's that's one of the pieces where we were able to actually move out and use ruby
0: lean on the language more yeah I think that wraps uh, things up pretty much. So uh, Josh and Joe, thanks very much for coming by and talking.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Absolutely. Often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email your question to info at com or tweet to us at at So we have uh, two events that we want to mention before we go. Uh, I'm actually going to be giving a talk. uh, October 8th through October 10th is Aloha Ruby, uh, where I'm giving a talk called Giving Great Technical Talks. It's going to be super meta. And then on October 9th, Mike Burns will be giving a talk called Scala on Android at the Stockholm Google Technology User Group. Today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quintal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.